passage of scripture that was written during the time of the captivity, which I will be speaking uh, about a, a, in a portion of the message that follows in a little while. When the uh, uh, Jerusalem fell, 586, the Babylonians took them away into exile. And when they got there, they spent uh, many years before they were allowed to return. We will deal with that more, but it's very appropriate to notice what they wrote about their spiritual life when they were out of touch with the place of worship. Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors made fun of us, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Out of touch with God? Out of touch with God's people? Out of touch with God's places of worship? No song in our hearts. How can we sing the Lord's song? in a foreign land. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt you, Jerusalem, above my chief joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Dear God, we thank you that you have redeemed us from foreign lands of unbelief, that you have redeemed us from separation from you and from God's people and God's places of worship. We thank you, Father, that you are the great Redeemer, that you have come to bring us home, to bring us back, and to restore the joy of the Lord within our hearts and our homes and our spirits. Do that this day. Revive your people, we pray, with your joy in our presence. We ask in Jesus' loving name, amen. You may be seated. I have a couple of things I want to, to do and some very exciting announcements uh, to make to you. First of all, I want, I want to, uh, to remind us that we ought to thank God for the rain that he sent us uh, this past week. We all prayed, and so let's give God a hand for what he did for us. So that's good. And he really was an answer to prayer. And we do trust God for the blessings that he gives us. We're thankful for that. And I know you want to join uh, me and others in praying for the violence that's going on in the world. It's just epidemic. In this nation and around the world, Kenya, Tanzania, Ireland, it's just so frightening. So we need to pray for the victims. We need to pray for people who would do that kind of thing. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine the twisted mind, the hatred that must, must permeate a person's soul to want to kill innocent men, women, children. It's just incomprehensible to me. How can we claim to be civilized in such a world as this? So we want to pray for the violence in the world and in our nation we want to pray for our schools, for teachers, for administrators, for students, 
want to pray it will be a good year. Pray that it will be a great year of uh, joy and happiness and learning. And we pray that it will be a year of safety for our children. So let's just have a special prayer together for a moment. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Dear Lord, we come as your people to thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. We thank you for the refreshment of the rain. The earth seems to reach up and clap its hands at receiving the refreshment from heaven. And we lift up our spirits and clap our hands to thank you for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us physically and spiritually. We thank you for it. We pray, Father, for the hurting people in the world, the victims of violence all over the world. We pray, Father, for those who are victims now of disease, of mental or spiritual or physical trouble, financial trouble, family trouble. Dear God, may the cooling, refreshing waters of your grace and spirit flow over our hearts and restore unto us the joy of our salvation. So, dear God, bless those who are victims of violence. And in a special way, bless children and teachers and administrators during this new school year. We know, dear God, that every one of those little children is precious in your sight. And, oh, God, may they have a safe year. May they have a positive year. May they not be uh, tempted with drugs. May they not make some mistakes of choice in their life. May there be a close relationship between parents and children. We pray you will give teachers your strength and guidance, insight, understanding. We know how difficult it is day in and day out. Dear God, give them your strength. and Bless them and use them, we pray, in a very special way. And all of this we pray in the loving name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Bradford Hall uh, died a year or so ago. He was an Episcopal minister in California. Never met him personally, uh, though I wish I could have known him. Uh, he, um, uh, I never heard him in person. I have a book of his. And in that book, he tells a story that I want to share with you. It's a story that took place around the turn of the century in uh, early America and in a very poor part of America family, mother, father, and one son. One day at school, the boy, 10 years of age, saw a poster on the bulletin board about a circus coming to town. He was so excited. He'd never seen a circus. He'd heard about them. He'd never been to a circus. And so he came home. And in the evening, he asked his father, he said, Dad, a circus is coming. Can I go to the circus? Well, this was a very poor family, and the father could tell how excited he was and how much he wanted to go. And so the father said, son, if, you, if you'll get up extra early on Saturday morning and finish your chores, finish what you need to do around the farm here, you can go to the circus. The boy got up extra early, and he got ready, and he came down, and he had on his Sunday best, and his father took out a $1 bill and gave it to him, and that was more money than that little boy had seen together in his lifetime, a dollar bill. His father said, now go to the circus, be safe, and have a good time. Well, he nearly flew downtown. His feet were just, as, he was ecstatic. And when he got downtown, he could see the crowd gathering along the street. 
for the parade. And he worked his way through the crowd till he got right up there at the front. And then here it came, the circus parade. Those exotic animals in cages and all that equipment being pulled and drawn by, by the elephants and the music and the clowns and the acrobats and all of that taking place. He was just overwhelmed. And the parade kept going by and he just couldn't get enough of it. And finally he could see the end was coming down to the end with sort of the number one clown and he was doing all of his antics and the little boy was laughing and enjoying it so much. The little boy walked out there to the clown, took out the dollar bill and handed it to him and said, thank you. And he went home. He missed the main event. Nobody told him. When I read that story, I felt like crawling into that story and saying, wait a minute, stop it, stop it, stop it. Son, go back. There's more. There's more. You've only seen the introduction. You've only gotten a taste of it. That's just a preview. You are missing the main event. Well, maybe as he got older, he made enough money to go to the circus. But the point of the story I want to make this morning is people who start out like that following Christ. They're introduced to him. They get the preview. They grow up. They know the Christmas story. They know the Easter story. They know all of these things objectively. And they think, oh, that's wonderful. That's marvelous. But somehow, they miss the main event. They start well. They're excited initially. And then they just fizzle out like a candle in the wind. Like Roman candle Christians. They have heat and then they explode and there's some beautiful color and then it all returns to earth as an ash. I know people like that, wonderful people, whom I believe are Christians. I don't question their faith in the Lord and their trust in the Lord, but they've given up. Maybe they've continued to worship, but it has become a dull, lifeless experience for them, just going through the motions. No energy, no vitality, no enthusiasm, no spark, no spirit. What's wrong? Well, they misunderstood the nature of the gospel. This little boy didn't understand that that was just the prelude. He didn't get the full picture. He misunderstood. Divide that word up. Hyphenate it. M-I-S dash understood or understanding. Misunderstanding. We can miss understanding the gospel. We can miss understanding all that God has for us if we get a limited view of what it means to be a Christian, if we get a limited view of salvation. So I want to try to, with the help of God and the insight that's come through some helpful uh, people and thinking and praying, Marcus Borg in his book has a wonderful delineation of this idea. <clears throat> and I want, to, I want to amplify it for myself and for you this morning. Look, look upon salvation as an equilateral triangle. You know what an equilateral triangle is? All right, the baseline is the base tangent. That is the cross and the temple. Maybe I should reverse the order, the temple and the cross, because the temple in the wilderness, the tabernacle, the temple when Solomon built it, the temple was a place of sacrifice. It was a place where sins were forgiven. It was a place where life could begin again. The temple 
was a type. The temple was a picture of the coming of Christ who was the Lamb of God. For thousands, I would say even millions of lambs had been slain upon those altars in the temple and the tabernacle. Then here comes Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was slain for our sins. He became sin for us. He took away our sin. He was raised from the dead, victorious over death. Jesus Christ came as the sin bearer. He came to be a sacrifice for us. He came to be a substitute for us. That's the beginning of the gospel. But that's not the end of the gospel. That's essential. That's the baseline, but there's more to it. And I think the problem is that some people have not understood the further nature of salvation. It's inclusiveness. It moves beyond that. That's essential. That's the starting point. Dr. W.T. Connor was professor of theology at Southwestern Seminary. Wonderful man. Had a long tenure of uh, ministry there and wrote many theological books. He was asked once, is salvation the end? Is salvation, how did he say it? Um, the gospel. He said, is, the young student said, is trusting Christ the gospel? He said, yes, it's the beginning of the gospel. It's not the end of the gospel. There is more to salvation than that event. God has so much more for us than a lot of us have yet experienced. And so this is what I want you to see. Here is the temple, the cross, the sacrifice for our sin. Some Christians never get past the cross. They live in a spiritual land of depression, guilt, negativism. They never get past the cross. They never get to the tomb. They never get to the empty tomb. They don't move past the cross. They continue to see Christ on the cross. They need to see an empty cross to see that he did pay the penalty for our sin. They need to see the empty tomb and hear the angel say to us, as he said early, many thousands, many years ago, he is not here. He is risen, the resurrection, the ascension. He ascended to the Father, the commission. He commissioned us to go into all of the world. So you see salvation is the sacrifice, it is the victory over death, it is the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father, the coming of His Holy Spirit to be with us, and we are to continue the journey doing what? Going into all the world, sharing the gospel. Some Christians feel that their salvation is the end of the gospel. It is. It's the front end. It's the beginning of what God wants to do in and through our lives. So there's a great, one of the three great stories in the Bible, Number one, chronologically, the exodus. The exodus. That's the other tangent of the, three, of the equilateral triangle. Here, sacrifice, substitute. Here, exodus. Put an S over this bottom tangent here. Put an S there for sacrifice and substitute. Up here, put an E for exodus. You know the story of the exodus. The Jews had been in bondage for over, uh, what, 300 years, 400 years in Egypt under the domination of Pharaoh. Slaves, no freedom, no joy, no life. And God raises up Moses and says through him to Pharaoh, you let my people go. 
You know what the word exodus means? It means a way out. Jesus Christ has come to give us a way out. A way out of depression. A way out of slavery. A way out of fear. I think of the AAs in our church. They know about deliverance. They know that the gospel is not just salvation. That's the beginning. That's the baseline. That's the bottom line. But they also know that he has come to do more than that. He has come to help us break our addictions. He has come to set us free from the Pharaohs of life, both those external and those internal that dominate us and control us and keep us from being free and liberated in Jesus Christ. Exodus. That's where we get our word exit. You see that exit sign over there and there and there and there? They're everywhere. You see them, dozens of them every day. I want to plant, I want to make a suggestive remark to you. I want to suggest something to you. I want you to plant something in your mind. Every time you see an exit sign, I want you to think of what Christ has done for you. He's brought you out. He gave us a way of forgiveness through his cross. He gives us a way out. Through his exodus, he will lead us out from the domination of Pharaoh in our lives. And he will lead us out to what? To a journey, to a continuing journey toward the promised land, exodus. You know, I, I find that there are some people that miss the gospel because they think that just hearing this and reading this is all that's necessary. Like, you're listening to me today, and you're saying, yes, Buckner, that's right. That, that sounds pretty good. Or you read it in the Scripture, and you say, oh, that sounds wonderful. That's marvelous. That's fine. But my friends, what we are reading here and what I'm trying to say here must be internalized in us. It must become a part of us. We're not talking about objective truth. We're talking about experiential faith, something happening to us. It's like going into a restaurant. Suppose you go into a nice restaurant and they come to the table. The waiter or the waitress comes to the table and the, they always say, would you like to hear the specials of the day? Why, sure. I always like to hear them because I'm amazed at how they can remember all of it. And I always compliment them. They'll go through this long list of exotic foods and just sounds marvelous and they, most of them don't have any notes they just memorize it like, isn't that terrific I sometimes say well will you say it again I just like to hear you say all of that <laughs> um, sometimes I order the special sometimes I don't but most of the time I'll take the menu and I'll look at the menu and I'll read it now suppose someone goes into a restaurant and someone comes and the wait, waiter waitresses uh, all of those uh, specials and they said, well, no, I want to look at the menu too, please. Thank you. That sounded wonderful. Ooh, amen. That was good. That was really good. Now I want to look at the, uh, look at the menu. And I look at, oh, isn't that great there? Mm, mm, mm. Veal, marsala. <laughs> Chicken piccata. Oh, my. And you're already wanting out of here right now, I can tell you. <laughs> Taste buds are flowing there. 
And uh, you sit there, and you and your friends sit there, and you read the menu, and you say, oh, listen to this, listen to this. And they read, oh, isn't that marvelous? Well, thank you very much. We've enjoyed it. And you get up and walk out. <laughs> and you go outside and say, oh, did you hear those specials? Wasn't that wonderful? And did you read about veal, marsala? Oh, my heart just said amen. They've read the menu. They know the bill of fare. They've yet to eat the food. That's the message. We can read it, and that's wonderful. But the bread of life is to be eaten. It needs to be ingested, become a part of our bone and blood and body and brain. Christ in you, Paul says. Not just Christ on a piece of paper, not just Christ, some waiter or waitress or preacher enumerating the objects or the the things that are available, take it, eat it. Why Jesus said at the Last Supper, take, eat. Don't just take and look at and say amen and agree with, eat it. Ingest it. He's come to give us a way of forgiveness. Internalize that, accept that. He's taken away your guilt. He's led you out of a world of guilt, a way out of a world of fear, of dying. He's let us out from the Pharaohs that dominate us. And then the next great event in the life of Israel, and listen, this is not just history. This is not just Jewish history we're talking about here. We're talking about my history and your history, our history. Salvation comes to us individually. Salvation is an experience where God leads us out, both individually and collectively. The other great event in the life of Israel was exile. When 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, captured Jerusalem, destroyed the city, tore down Solomon's temple, took all of those magnificent furnishings away, and took the people of God into slavery in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar. They were there for many years. Some of them were able to rise to places of responsibility. They had some degree of freedom, but they were not home. They were alienated from home. Some became very prominent and served God in that terrible situation. Daniel the story of Daniel in the lion's den, the three children of Israel in the fiery furnace, all that took place in Babylon. Ezekiel was a prophet. Ezra was the teacher. Nehemiah was also a prominent man in the court and came back to build, rebuild the wall. But they were away from home. They were restless. That's why when you read this psalm, you read about what they felt. The 137th psalm is written during the Babylonian captivity, listen to what he writes. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, when we remembered home. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps, for there our captors demanded of us songs. They tormented us, saying, 
sang us one of the songs of Zion. Sang us one of the songs of home. And he writes, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, my home, if I forget you, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, home, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy, home, Jerusalem, symbol of home, new Jerusalem, the symbol of our eternal home, where there will be a new Jerusalem and there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all of the old things will have passed away and all of the new things will have become new because God has come not only to save us and to forgive us of our sin and to take away our guilt, not only to lead us out of trouble and despair and disappointment and temptation and fear, He has come to take us home. And we're not home yet. Not a single one of us in this room is home yet. Now, I know what I'll say here when the service is over in a little while. I'll say, I'm going home. No, I'm going to where my home is now. But I have one more change of address to make, and so do you. Every one of us have one more change of address. Home. That's an emotional word it is for me, and I'm sure it is for you. We sing about it. Home sweet home. Home. There have been times in my life, Martha and I are married, and in some ways looking back on my life, I don't think my life really began till till we till I married Martha. I mean just life took on a whole new dimensions. It, two becoming one is just a remarkable thing. And, and then after a number of years, Mike was born. I thought, boy, what a home we have. We have pictures of it and thought, mm, I'd, I'd like to freeze frame that. Just stop there. Don't, no more, Lord. Just this is good. This is well. This is fine. This is enough. And then three years later, Steve comes in. Oh, it's marvelous. Got a bigger picture. Got to take another picture. This is home now. This is home. And then six years later, Lisa comes. Oh, keep the old pictures over here. We want to remember that. But here it is now. Here's home. Here's home. And then they get married. Ike and Steve. Mary Harriet and Debbie. Lisa marries George. And four grandchildren come. Oh, man, you talk about life beginning. It's when grandchildren come. I mean, I, we should have started there. It was just, it was just, it's just marvelous. And um, each one of them, a miracle in, in and of herself and himself. Avery, and then Julia, and then Megan, and then Michael. And every time we take the pictures, oh, it's perfect. We all came down here on Friday in the middle of all that rain. Twelve of us. All twelve of us. And we did our individual pictures and then we finally got in there and got one where everybody was smiling and had their uh, eyes open and their mouth closed and all and finally got a family picture. And it's a good one. We're going to be proud of it. And then we all went to eat at a hamburger place. All 12 of us descended upon this place. And uh, 
we got back there and we were eating and they had one of those machines where you put some money in there and it has the claw you know and it reaches down and gets those uh, those stuffed animals stuffed toys one kind or another I spent enough money on those things to buy the restaurant uh, and you spend five or six dollars to get something for two bucks but it's it's uh, it's the experience itself so after we ate we got we armed them with quarters and they went over there and they started working that thing and all of us were crowded around all 12 of us now Avery has gotten a lot of them out of there she's been able to get a lot of them out. Julia's done the same thing she's gotten her share she's gotten a bunch of them not all at that time but over the years they've gotten um, Megan is now she's gotten a place where she's kind of a veteran herself but little Michael had never gotten one yet by himself but boy he got one by himself last Friday evening and we had a celebration there in that restaurant and we were high-fiving everybody you know and uh, we were all jumping around and just clapping people in there thought that we were something wrong with us and uh, I kind of backed away to just look at it and I was holding a handful of quarters and I looked at all that and I said Lord it can't get any better than this it just can't get any better than this I'd, I'd like to just freeze frame this stop it all everybody's healthy and happy let's just go somewhere and stay like this forever doesn't work does it oh there are better days ahead and thank God for them and we'll live off of those experiences forever but we're not home yet someday we'll all be home you remember E.T. that funny little thing from somewhere else came here that strange voice and that strange face and those big eyes and that kind of crooked long crooked finger do you remember the movie and he pointed up and what did he say home we can point with him home the Astros won in overtime in the extra innings yesterday I saw a man go from first to second to third to fourth no baseball has a lot of spiritual connotations to it the whole object of baseball is to get where to get home that's the whole object of life in this life is to get home the way to get home is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ write an S over that and experiencing the exodus where he brings us out of trouble he is always with us have you noticed in all three of these stories there is journey there is not just an event that suddenly gets freeze-framed there is a continuing journey that goes on Jesus said it my sheep hear my voice and they follow me my sheep hear my voice and they what believe me trust me sing about me talk to me yes but they follow me they move out after me to do what I'm leading them to do have you ever noticed that uh, the word sheep is both singular and plural 
You drive past a bunch of horses and say, hey, look at all those horses. They're over here, look at all those cows. You don't ride by and say, hey, look at all those sheeps. <laughs> Sheep is both singular and plural. Why? There's a spiritual truth involved here. Jesus Christ knows every one of us individually. He knows us by name. My sheep hear my voice. I am the great shepherd of the flock. If one sheep gets lost, what do I do? I go after it. Why? Because we have an individual, personal, experiential relationship with him, but we also become part of a family. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to know Christ personally and to be a part of the flock, overseen by the shepherd. That's what we are. That's why it's belonging to church is not essential. It's just inevitable. If you meet Christ and know the forgiveness that is ours through his death and resurrection, if you experience him bringing you out of difficulty and problems and all along this journey being with you, and if he is bringing you home and promising a home for you, having gone to prepare a place for you, you want to be a part of the people that are following him. My sheep hear my voice and they, plural, not he and she, they follow me. So you see, it is extremely important that we go all the way home. I think some Christians flounder around in this life because they don't realize that God has an exit for them, a way out of their problems and difficulties, and he has a way in for them into the house of the Lord and the home of the Lord of the Father forever and ever and ever. Home. I, I can remember... After being away from home, some of you were away a lot longer and under much more difficult circumstances than I. I was away from home for three and a half years. I got home once during that time, early on. I was away from home two Christmases and then came home in 1946, got to California, was discharged from the Marine base in San Diego. And when we came out of the base carrying our sea bags and all of us, some guys out there who had bought some C-47s, better later known as the DC-3, had bought some C-47s, and they were retired Air Force people who'd also <clears throat> now out of the service, and they said, now, where do you guys want to fly? We'll take you anywhere. Uh, and so a whole bunch of us got together and put our money in, and they brought us home. Well, I called my folks, and I said, I'm flying home. Now, I didn't go into any detail about how it was coming. I, I just said, I'm flying home. Well, that's all they knew. I sent a telegram. I don't think I called. Uh, so we all got on this plane, about 20 or 30 of us, and we stopped in uh, Phoenix. can't remember all the places. Uh, in Albuquerque and uh, I think Amarillo. I know we stopped in Dallas because that's where I got off. Oklahoma City and then Dallas. And then the plane came on to San Antonio uh, to bring my closest friend, A.A.L. Al Dalton, A.G. Dalton, who grew up here in San Antonio, and he and I were together for three years. But I got out in Dallas, and uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, late, early, terrible time of the day, but I was so happy. I was home, nearly. Got that big old sea bag, went out, got a taxi. My folks had been out to the terminal. They'd called trying to find out when flights were coming. Not nearly as many flights in those days as, as now. 
They'd been out there, all the whole family, and I didn't show up, so they had all gone home. And I'm sure concerned about what was happening. But uh, I got in a taxi and told that taxi to take me to 6942 Mistletoe Drive. And I will never forget it. You will not forget it the way it happened to you. And I'll not forget the way it happened to me. The front porch light was on because my mother always left the front porch light on. And I went up there, carrying a big old sea bag, and rang the doorbell. Now, we live in a beautiful house, but not a, not a large house. Living room, and behind the living room was my mother and father's bedroom, and then there was a, a bath, one bath, and there was a bedroom where my brother and I lived, and, and then the dining room, small dining room in the kitchen. Rang the bell, and that bell hadn't stopped ringing till I heard, heard my mother say, not say, more screamed it, he's home. He's home. My dad was already out of bed. My mother was shouting to my brother, Bob, whom we called Bobby in those days, Bobby, get up. Bobby, get up. He's home. And you come in and you don't know kind of how to begin. It's such an emotional, amazing time. You just, you're home. Oh, that pales into insignificance. When the time comes, when he brings us home. And the word will be shouted throughout the corridors of eternity, down the golden streets, bouncing off the pearly gates. He's home. He's home. He's home. Do you want to be home? This can be your home church until we all go home to be with the Lord. He's come to give us forgiveness, to bring us out, and to bring us home. Will you trust him today to do that? Will you say, I want to be a part of that fellowship? I'm a sheep. I want to trust him and become a part of the flock here that's endeavoring to follow him and to be his people. Come home softly, and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Come home, come home. Listen, he's already called you. He's called you again this morning through the music and the message. Maybe there have been times when you didn't want to talk to him, but you know what? He left a message on your answering machine. And you know what he said? I love you. Come home. He took the initiative. Return his call this morning. It's the polite thing to do. Not only that, it's the eternal thing to do. Come home. Let's stand and sing. Softly and tenderly.